Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. My name's Dave Meyer and I am your host. Joined with Kathy Fecky today. Kathy, what's new with you? Oh, well, I am just so excited to hear what Brian has to say. He is just a, a brilliant investor, and I think a lot of people are going to learn so much from this interview. Yeah, I've, I've gotten to uh, meet Brian a few times now, luckily, but he's like one of my original people I looked up to when I joined Bigger Pockets. Like, he's just been around for so long yeah. and has been so smart and right for so long he is just it's a treat to be able to talk to him and he speaks in a way you can understand you know he boils it down into um you know basics it, it, it just i just he, his voice needs to be out there more uh, helping protect investors and syndicators because um it's rough waters yeah Absolutely. And just so everyone knows, uh, we are going to be talking today mostly about multifamily investing, but 
And that does have implications for the whole real estate investing industry. But just to be clear, what we talk about, Kathy, Brian, and I in this episode is not the residential market. There are differences between multifamily and commercial markets and the residential markets. Brian does a great job of explaining that, but just want to make that clear um, before we jump into this. But it's super, super interesting. And if you want to just build out your knowledge as an investor, the concepts that Brian talks about that form and inform his opinion about the multifamily market are applicable to investors of all types. So definitely pay attention. And as Kathy said, he makes these really important, complex topics super easy. So we've got an excellent, excellent episode for you. We're going to jump into it in just a second, but first we're going to take a quick break. We know you've heard it before. Cash flow is getting very hard to find. There's always long distance investing, but you may be thinking, I don't have a team, enough experience, or the market knowledge to get in. That's where you're wrong. And it's also where Rent to Retirement comes in. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest out of state with confidence. They've got single family, multifamily, new build, and syndication opportunities across multiple markets. They even have bird deals with immediate equity. Rent to Retirement helps investors learn how to build a bulletproof business plan with the best investment and tax strategies around to help you reach financial freedom through real estate. There's no excuse not to get started in real estate investing when you have the right team and systems already in place. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. You're trying to close on your next rental. So why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 Exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com. Or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com. Or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe. Smart. Secure.
Brian Burke, welcome to On The Market. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me here, Dave. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. For those of our listeners who don't know who you are, could you provide a brief introduction? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Brian Burke, president and CEO of Praxis Capital, longtime Bigger Pockets member, I think going on 10 or so years now. Uh, my company invests in multifamily housing across the U.S. I've been doing this for, in the multifamily side, about 20 years. Uh, started out as a single family house flipper, did about 725 or 750 house flips, but uh, now our core business is multifamily. Uh, our, our portfolio topped out about 4,000 units. Wow. Well, yeah. You, you, when I started working at Bigger Pockets, you were one of the like OG forum members that I remember really looking up to. And you were too modest to, uh, to uh, also mention your book, The Hands-Off Investor, which is one of my favorite books, really great uh, introduction to investing in syndication. So if anyone's interested in that, you can check that out from Brian as well. But we're here, obviously, to talk about the tumultuous economy and state of the multifamily market. So you have a pretty interesting opinion about what's going on here. So can you give us like a brief synopsis of what you think is going on in the multifamily space as we head into 2023? Well, I think we're in for uh, quite a change in the market from what people have become accustomed to. Uh, the prices and rents in multifamily, uh, in the multifamily space have really only gone in one direction for about the last 12 or 13 years. And I think uh, a lot of people thought that that was the way it always is and was always going to continue. Um, but I've, I've seen this movie before and it's, it's kind of like, you know, back in like 05, 06, right before the big housing crash, I just remember like uh, people talking about how, oh, my, my plumber bought a house and made a hundred grand in one year. And so I've got to go buy a house and, you know, and the whole thing subsequently came crashing down. And it's like when everybody is doing it, then you know that there's uh, probably a, a problem soon to follow. Uh, this also happened in the dot-com bust, the 2000, when everybody was investing in stocks. Next thing you know, it came uh, crashing down in a ball of flames. And what I've noticed over the last three or four years, we're getting into this, you know, everybody's a multifamily investor, everybody's a syndicator, and they were just becoming, uh, the space was becoming overcrowded and overheated. And I thought that uh, we'd probably see uh, quite a different looking market uh, coming in not too distant future. Well, that got pushed uh, even sooner uh, as uh, thanks to uh, recent actions by the Fed and of course the bond markets that have driven interest rates up. Uh, that's uh, been kind of the spark that lit the fuse. And, and I think, uh, you know, the bomb is starting to go off. Wow. Bomb going off. That's a little bit scary. <laughs> so can you say a little bit more about that? Um, just generally, like, maybe actually, let's let's st take a step back and just provide uh, our listeners with a little bit of foundational knowledge here. Why is it that you think first, do you think that the the commercial multifamily market is different from the residential market? And what are some of the key differences you see? Yeah, they're completely different and, and they can be entirely disconnected. And, you know, I get this question all the time about, you know, oh, you're a real estate investor. What's going on in the market? And it's like, what the heck is the market? You know, there's really no <laughs> such thing as the market. Uh, you know, multifamily trades on a different cycle at different amplitudes than single family, than hotels, than commercial. 
even within itself, you could have multifamily doing great in Tampa, Florida, but doing absolutely terrible in San Francisco. Uh, that might, actually might ring true now, as a matter of fact. Uh, single family can uh, prices can be falling while multifamily prices are increasing. Uh, so they're they're completely unrelated, and it's it's really impossible to try to put a nexus between them that uh, that's going to stand the test of time. So Brian, you know, you've been really cautious and you have really timed things well. It's been really uh, incredible to watch you and watch your company grow. Uh, I know we would run into a, each other in events and I would always pull you aside and say, Brian, what are you, what, you know, what are you working on? What are you doing? And we would both be a, like extremely concerned about the underwriting that was happening over the past few years and the deals people were doing. They'd come across my desk and I was like, this doesn't make sense. And I would go to you and say, is it me? Am I just not seeing the opportunity, you know? But how have you been able to navigate, uh, you know, let's just say the last decade and time things so well? Uh, Kathy, it's not you, it's me. Uh, <laughs> just always know that. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I, maybe I have a, a sixth sense about these market cycles. I don't know, but I've, I've managed to navigate them fairly well over the years. Uh, I basically stopped buying real estate in about 04 and a half. Uh, and then by 0506, the market completely catapulted and just it went in the toilet. So I managed to avoid the worst of that. Uh, we managed to somehow be uh, uh, lucky enough to acquire a rental pool of about 120 rental houses in the San Francisco Bay Area in 2009 and 10, right before it all you know started to you know, bought right as it was bottoming out. Rode that up until those prices doubled in a half and sold the whole portfolio. Uh, right as the housing market was starting to slow just a little bit. So I've managed to figure out the timing more often than not. Of course, I've certainly been wrong uh, my share of times, but uh, I think it's just a matter of staying in tune to what's going on, recognizing the uh, the signals around you. And sometimes it's not like you can point to one specific data point and say, oh, I read it in an article that, you know, this or that is happening, or this is going to be, you know, 0 0.7 and, and I, I'll sell when it's a 0 0.8, you know, that kind of stuff. It's not like that. It's, it's just a matter of uh, a kinetic sense of what's, what's going on around you, being aware of your surroundings. I think maybe this came from my background in law enforcement before I was, you know, really uh, a full-time real estate investor, always wondering, you know, what's the, what's the next bad guy hiding behind the corner, uh, you know, ready to attack you as you, uh, uh, as you come around. So, uh, I look at a lot of, uh, you know, news and information and articles and data points and, and also just a sense of, uh, you know, when things are just getting too overheated or too cooled down. And, and what, what, what was the bad guy this time around? Like over the past couple of years, what were you, <laughs> what were you seeing around the corner? Uh, what I was seeing was uh, two things, uh, a massive interest in acquiring multifamily coupled with uh, high leverage risky debt. Uh, and so to put that into practical example, when we would go to acquire property, let's say we're putting in a bid on a, you know, 200 unit apartment building and we, we crank on it as hard as we can and come up with the highest price that we can. And we submit an offer only to find out that there's 35 other offers, uh, half of them with 
uh, hard, you know, non-refundable earnest money deposits, some of them over a million dollars, and asking the broker about the financing structure that the other buyers are doing, finding out, well, well, they're all using bridge debt, which is high leverage and short term. And uh, when you see that kind of stuff happening, you know that it's time to sell and things are topping out. And that's exactly what we did. And when we put our first property on the market and we had, I don't know, 17 or 18 offers, uh, we knew that our thesis was more than just, you know, an op- a, a casual observation. And so that and so you, you obviously have seen a lot of demand, um, but that was even according to your timeline, that was even before the Fed started raising interest rates. Is that right? Oh, yeah, that that was uh, this all started in. Uh, Early tw- or, yeah, early 2020 is really when it started, and then COVID hit in early uh, early 2020, and uh, it kind of instantly shut the market off. And so for about four or five months, we just sat on the sideline. We didn't really want to buy anything. We didn't really want to sell anything. Uh, it just didn't seem the time was right. And then things started to really take off. And it was interesting to watch because uh, come third quarter to fourth quarter of um, 2020, market activity was way hotter than it was even pre-COVID. Rent growth took off like a lightning storm. We kind of were able to recognize some of those patterns of what was causing it and and how we could benefit from it. And that was like the final um, nail in the coffin, so to speak, for us. And and that's when you know we made the decision to essentially sell everything that we could uh, keeping only our highest quality, uh, best properties, uh, remaining behind in the portfolio. It seems like, um, multifamily, or at least a lot of multifamily deals are sitting on quicksand today, just sinking. I mean, what, what are you seeing out there from people you talk to and what are the challenges that some of these operators are facing? Well, some of the, uh, operators who financed conservatively, and bought, let's say, any time you know before 2022, even even in early 2021, uh, not really hearing much about challenge. Uh, mm-hmm. Occupancies are are holding very steady. Uh, we're you know like for our our portfolio, for example, we're getting our pro forma rents, the rents that we expected to get when we initially underwrote the property. We're getting, in some cases, we're getting more. Uh, occupancies are, are uh, holding in the mid 90s, just like we expected them to do. So we're not seeing really any stress in that regard. Uh, and I don't think any of our fellow owners that are in a similar situation are either. The ones we're seeing the most challenge is coming from basically two sources people that bought early this year, uh, call it uh, you know Q1, Q2 of 2022, paying 2021 prices, uh, but ending up getting stuck with 2022 interest rates. Uh, seeing some stress there, and then owners that bought uh, a little bit before this year, maybe you know one year ago, two years ago, that used high leverage financing, and they didn't get a chance for. Uh, the rent growth to catch up or their renovations to really uh, reach a critical mass to increase their income enough to cover uh, far higher interest rates. And one characteristic of that bridge debt is the interest rates are floating and they're generally floating at a pretty wide margin over the index. And so SOFR index at the beginning of 2022 was five hundredths of one percent, 0.05 of one percent. 
and now Sofer is, uh, I think it was like in the mid twos or mid threes even. It's it's gone up a lot. And so if your loan is 300 or 400 uh, basis points over Sofer, you're now looking at close to 8% interest rates when they probably underwrote to a four or maybe a four and a half and they don't have the cash flow to cover it. So I've been hearing a few stories about uh, uh, some operators requesting loan modifications, uh, some requesting forbearance to stay out of foreclosure. Uh, only just now beginning to hear talk about uh, people who are um, reaching uh, maturities or needing to refinance and are finding that to be difficult. I think we've only barely cracked the door open on that scenario. That's going to be the next shoe that drops, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, what, and what does that look like? I mean, are banks being lenient? Are they offering the forbearances? You know, I I don't know. I I think so to a certain degree. Uh, you know, one thing a lot of people don't know is I had started a bridge uh, lending company five years ago, and we did two billion dollars with a B in loans in that five years. One billion of which was in twenty twenty one. Uh, I sold that company as well. Jeez, <laughs> it, Brian, you are a baller. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and 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 uh, but but I've been talking to uh, you know some of the people I know in the industry and and finding out that uh, well, first of all, in you know the loans that we made are still doing quite well, uh, thankfully. But our our lending was quite a bit different than some of this larger CRE bridge product that we're seeing. Uh, but I was just uh, having a conversation a couple days ago with a warehouse lender. The, these are the folks that do the loans to the people who do the loans. And I, I am hearing a little bit of talk about, uh, you know, a little bit of patience for uh, borrowers who may be running up against a maturity yet are still paying. Uh, but if they're not paying, there's, there's likely not to be uh, much leniency. Now, the challenge that we have is that some of these borrowers aren't going to be able to pay. And as rates have gone up so much, if the cash flow isn't there, they're going to have problems. I mean, we, we had two of the properties, actually three properties that we sold in 2021. We had brokers unknowingly come to us this year trying to sell us those properties <laughs> because the sellers were trying to get out because they used high leverage financing and they're having trouble. Uh, so uh, it's definitely... Uh, I think the uh, cracks are only starting to appear right now. A couple of weeks ago, for the people who listen to this show, you might have heard a show uh, where Ben Miller, who's the CEO of Fundrise, was on. James and I interviewed him, and he has a similar take uh, as you do, Brian, about the state of multifamily. And he said he was fearful that there's just going to be a lack of liquidity um, and for not just the two cohorts you describe, but also people whose commercial balloons are coming due and who also need to people who bought five or seven years ago. And that's people are trying are facing not just banks who uh, are, you know, not wanting to extend loans, but there's just not enough money out there to cover some of the needed liquidity. Are you seeing that at all? I haven't seen that yet. It certainly could become an issue. Uh, I, I would say that lenders are becoming more conservative. And whenever lenders become more conservative, that means that there's less capital flow, right? So uh, this could become an issue. Now, I think you're going to see this issue materialize more in, uh, in other sectors outside of multifamily to a greater extent. 
if you have a portfolio of shopping centers or office buildings and you've got a commercial maturity coming, yeah, maybe there could be a liquidity issue uh, to refi because values haven't really gone up. In fact, arguably, you know, you could say that office maybe has become a little bit stressed and capital may be difficult to obtain there. But in performing multifamily assets, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are the backstops for, you know, the the biggest financiers out there in that space. Uh, they're always going to be there. Now, to what extent, we don't know. I mean, they do have lending caps every year. Uh, they're not even going to come close to it this year after two or three years of constantly hitting it, where it used to be, you know, if you wanted to get a multifamily loan from Fannie or Freddie, you better not try to do it in October or in November and December because they were reaching their cap and you're probably going to have a challenge. Uh, but now they're not even going to hit their cap. So if you bought seven years ago, man, you're going to be fine because values in multi have gone up so much uh, in seven years that, you know, as, assuming you hadn't previously refinanced and stripped out all your equity, uh, you should have a ton of equity to be able to qualify for very low leverage, probably 40 or 50 LTV uh, takeouts. I don't see any issue there. Now, if you bought Two years ago, using 85% to cost bridge debt, and you know you haven't. Maybe it's a Class C property, and you're suffering from uh, delinquent uh, collections and uh, and that sort of stuff. Uh, then your takeouts could be a little more challenging. It seems like you've been very disciplined in your buy box, and uh, obviously. So, what what are those fundamentals that you follow that you know have worked so well for you? Well, now the fundamental is a flight to quality. Uh, you know, I, I haven't I haven't always had that uh, as a element of our portfolio. We certainly had our phase of doing Class C, uh, maybe even C minus type stuff. Uh, I think uh, the experience has taught me uh, to think a little bit counterintuitively from. What some people believe is they say, well, I want to invest in Class C because when the economy goes south, Class C does the best because the Class B people can't afford the Class B. So they move into mm -hmm. Class C and Class A moves to Class B and Class A suffers. Uh, and so that's the that's the thesis that you'll hear. Uh, you'll hear, oh, it's workforce housing and everybody needs a place to live. And I just don't buy into either of those two theses. Uh, what, you know, on the uh, on the class uh, part, I, I feel like in my experience, the class C uh, tend to perform the worst in a downturn because the the resident profile is generally the one most impacted by layoffs and wage cuts and, and other things. Uh, so then what ends up happening is they stop paying rent and they have really nowhere else to go. So they don't leave. You have to wait all the way through an eviction and that can take months. And now, you know, when they leave, they don't leave it in the best condition. And now you got all this turnover cost and it just eats you alive. Uh, whereas your, you know, class A, they'll discount their rents and do some concessions, but they'll stay relatively full. Uh, so in my experience, class A tends to do better in a downturn. And so our, our buy box has been more of a shift to a, uh, a flight to quality. Now, I, I think, uh, just looking at things like uh, crime statistics, school ratings, income, uh, all these different factors help guide us to uh, submarkets where we feel we're, we have the highest likelihood of actually collecting our rent. Uh, and, and that really does make a difference. And how will you know that it's time for you to jump back in again? 
You know, I'll start to see signals. Uh, when you start to see more distressed sales, you start to see a couple REOs coming out. These are bank-owned uh, properties. You'll know it's really time to hit it. Uh, but uh, to get a little bit earlier, I, I think when, <clears throat> when you see more and more people talking negatively about the business, that's probably about a pretty good time. You know, I, I, rem <laughs> I remember in, uh, in, in 09, uh, when you know, the market was just in the toilet, the residential market was terrible. And I was at a family office conference and I had just given a presentation about uh, what we were going to do next, which was we were going to be buying single family homes to rent out. You know, we'd been flipping like 120 houses a year and it was great business uh, while there were all these foreclosures. But I said, we're shifting to a buy and hold model, at least for some of our portfolio. This guy comes up to me and he goes, he goes, you, you've got it all wrong. He's like, you don't know what you're talking about. This is not the time to buy rentals. This is the time to be flipping. You know, it's crazy. You're catching a falling knife. You know, what are you even thinking? And, and this guy was supposedly this sophisticated, you know, this guy, uh, family office guy. And it's like, yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, well, you know, I said, look, I think houses are going to double in value in the next five years. Oh, that's just ridiculous. Well, I was wrong. They didn't double in value in five years. They doubled and a half in value in five years. And, and that, you know, that really was confirmation that it was the time to do it. When, when people were telling you it's the absolute wrong thing to do, um, that's when I, I think it's the right thing to do. So we've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, performance in terms of cash flow and whether people are going to default. Where do you see valuations for multifamily properties going right now? Because the data, you know, I'm not involved in the day-to-day -day in the way you are, but I look at sort of the aggregate data that every commercial real estate investor looks at. The cap rates haven't really expanded to the point I would expect them to at this point in the cycle. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yes and no. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting, there's like two parallel universes right now. <laughs> you know, there's, there's like reality and then there's dreamland. And uh, <laughs> there's just enough people that still live in dreamland uh, to make, uh, to obscure what's really going on in reality. Uh, and so here's what I mean by that. Uh, I, I had a, a broker uh, in the Phoenix area call me uh, about six months ago. So this was just as the market was starting to turn. And he said, well, what are your thoughts on the market? And I said, well, the mere fact that I haven't heard from you in two years and now you're calling me tells you everything you need to know about what's going on in the market. Obviously, buyers have vaporized or you wouldn't be calling me because he's trying to see, hey, are you a buyer, right? And so, so I asked him, I said, I, I said, I cannot justify paying 300 a door for 1980s value add product. It's just not making any sense. And he's like, well, you know, now we're starting to take that same stuff out for 250 a door. The same stuff they were taking out three months prior for 300 a door, they're taking out for 250 a door. So that's, you know, right there, there's a 10 to 15% price cut. And that was overnight. It was like a light switch. And people may not realize that that happened uh, if they aren't paying really close attention to the market. Now, the interesting part about that was even though prices fell from where they were in January, February, March, they were still up from where they were in, say, like, you know, August or July or August of 2021. So there was, the, there was this really rapid ramp up here in the third and fourth quarter of 21 and first 
quarter of 2022. And then second quarter is when everything kind of fell off a cliff. Well, you know, now you start getting brokers calling and, and you know, you're saying like, you know, hey, look, three cap isn't a thing anymore, right? And, and well, we're getting offers and this and that. And what's happening is there's just enough people out there that have a 1031 that they have to, uh, you know, close out, or they've got, uh, they raised $500 million and they got to get the money out because it's sitting there, you know, burning a hole in their pocket. Uh, there's just enough of them. Uh, and there's so few sellers that there's this little minutia of transaction volume that's taking place. And it's still taking place at these ultra compressed cap rates. Well, guess what? As soon as those buyers, <clears throat> as soon as those buyers spend their money and then they go away or more sellers need to sell because they need to sell, uh, then the real pricing is going to get discovered. So we're in this little phase of price discovery where uh, there's a wide bid ask spread resulting in almost no transactions, but the transactions that are taking place are just as you said, Dave, they're still kind of in that high threes, low fours. Hmm. And that's not going to stick. It's just not going to stick. And, and the, the thing that people got to think about is if a cap rate was 4%, and it goes to 5%, you go, oh, you know, cap rates move 1%, no big deal. But guess what? Uh, from four to five is a 25% decline in asset value. So it is actually quite significant. And I think you're not only gonna see that, uh, I think there's a really good chance that you see multifamily, even in good markets, could be in the high fives or touching in sixes, and maybe even go a little higher than that. Thank, thank you for explaining that. I, I still am just like, I guess the 1031 money and these institutions that have money to spend, but I just don't understand the bull case here. Like who do, do either of you know, like a coherent argument about why multifamily values would go up in the next couple of years, which would justify buying at a cap rate. That's about what bond yields are right now. Well, the argument I usually hear is, well, the everybody needs a place to live argument. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of them, uh, which, by the way, is BS, because just because everybody needs a place to live doesn't mean they're going to rent your apartment. They could live with their parents. They could move in with their friends. They could double up. It's about household formation. Not everybody needs a place to live. Uh, so I, I think that plays a part in it. Um, but the, the other theory that I hear is interest rates are going up, which is going to cause uh, house payments to go up, which is going to cause more people to stay in the renter pool or enter the renter pool, which is going to place more demand on rentals, which is going to force rents up and rents going up is going to force up values. That's the thesis that I hear. And, and certainly, you know, one could argue there's merit to that, uh, to that thesis that, that could in fact take place. But it's gonna be difficult because the rents have already gone up. And this is kind of the part that, that people tend to wanna to dismiss is that there was a massive increase in rents over the last two or three years. Some markets, I, I just read Phoenix was up like 80% in five mm -hmm. years or something like that. Wow. And, and you know, I, I know that some people say like, oh, that can never continue. And some people say, oh yes, it can. I've seen both happen uh, and it probably will continue, but it's gonna take a while. And there's going to have to be this leveling off and kind of a chance for everybody, okay, cool off, just let this set for a minute, and then we'll get back to, you know, rent growth later. That period could be a, a six months, or it could be six years. I mean, that's the part that nobody knows right now. 
Yeah, I mean, Dave, to answer your question, I, I, I also hear, you know, inflation and lack of supply and, uh, you know, there's just not enough out there. So we got to get it now. And I can tell you, I spoke, I did that debate at uh, the Best Ever Conference in, I think it was February or March. And the debate was, are, are there going to be more sales, commercial sales this year, or less than last year? And I was on the side of it'll be less. And the audience voted that it would be more uh, before the debate. And I had to just like pound it. I'm like pounding the podium saying, are you not listening to the Fed? Do you not see what's coming? And the fact of the matter is they didn't. They had no idea. And we just talked about it earlier, like people now know who the Fed is. And <laughs> maybe they'll pay attention. But just in March, I looked at a group of thousands of multifamily investors who had no idea what was about to happen. And it did happen. Uh, the sales in the first half of 2022 were greater than the sales in the first half of 2021. However, sales in the fourth quarter of 2022 are going to round out at around 30 billion or uh, 30, yeah, 30, 30 billion. Compare that to last year's fourth quarter was 130 billion. So it's down, I don't know, what's that 70? I'm not, I'm not that good at math. 70%? It's a down a lot, right? Uh, so it's happening already. And that's going to continue. I think you're going to see very light transaction velocity uh, for at least the next couple quarters. Brian, what do you make of the increase in multifamily construction of late? We've seen it go up a lot. I actually saw something today that said it's at the highest rate since like 1973. And there seems to be a good deal of inventory that's going to come online over the next year, I think particularly in Q2. How do you think that's going to add to this complex market that you're, you're sharing with us? Well, it's gonna it's gonna change uh, things only very regionally. Uh, there are some areas that really have no development. Uh, case in point, uh, late last year, I bought a three property portfolio uh, of multifamily assets. Which you think, oh my god, late last year, terrible time. Well, kind of, but uh, it was a kind of a distress sale, so we we really got a good deal on it. But really, the one of the things that really drove me to it was it's located in a county that has had a moratorium on multifamily construction for like 15 years. And they're the newest properties in the county. And there's only like 11 properties over 100 units in the whole county. Uh, so it had and it's a very populous county, a suburb of Atlanta. And it's so it, it I didn't have to worry about multifamily development coming in and overrunning us. And, and that was an important consideration. Uh, you go to Phoenix, Arizona, and you know they're building left and right. Uh, but that isn't necessarily a wrong choice. I mean, there's people moving there left and right. So what really matters most is looking at construction to absorption ratios. How much is being constructed versus how much is being absorbed and how, much, how many uh, people are moving to that area. And this is one of the reasons why I constantly preach buy in markets where people are moving to and avoid markets where people are moving from. It's kind of almost as simple as that. And Kathy asked about my buy box earlier. That's criteria number one. Uh, but you're, you're going to see some markets that may suffer from additional inventory. Your question as to why, you know, it's kind of like, you're like, okay, the multifamily market is starting to suffer. Why are all these builders building stuff? Well, don't forget that in order to build something, it takes two or three years 
or if you're in California, two or three decades of preparation <laughs> to get a property to the point where you're pounding nails. And so when things are going great post-COVID, you're like, oh my gosh, there's demand everywhere. There's rent growth everywhere. We got to build, build, build. It's becoming too expensive to buy. It's cheaper to build than it is to buy. Let's do that. They start going down that road. You get past the point of no return. And inevitably, and this is why I hate development, by the time you actually finally start hanging windows, the market goes to crap. And so that's what we're seeing, right? And so you're going to have uh, some of this inventory coming online at the worst possible time. That's going to create some stress in some markets. But you also have a lot of projects that maybe they're approved uh, and they were about to start, but they haven't actually started running tractors yet. And those guys might not get financing. And you might see a lot of those properties pushed back or canceled entirely. So the jury is still out on how that's going to affect things, but it's only going to affect things regionally. I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to put a national opinion on how that's going to change things. Would you invest in uh, new construction multifamily? Oh, heck no. <laughs> I love someone who just gives a straight answer. No, no caveats. Just... Yeah, no. Well, actually, okay, here's a caveat. When you say, would I invest in new construction, if a project was completed and we had the opportunity to acquire it, uh, yes. And, uh, you know, we've certainly uh, been in the running on doing this before. We actually had one in contract. And then <laughs> this is kind of a funny story. We had a property in contract, great market, just about to complete construction. We would have had to do all the lease up and everything. And uh, the, the seller defaulted on the purchase agreement because they decided they wanted to keep the property because they thought they could sell it for more. And that was middle of 2021. So I wouldn't want to be them and having to explain that decision to their investors today. But uh, I guess maybe I dodged a bullet. I, I do like high quality assets. New properties have less maintenance requirements. And so I, I would like to buy uh, newly constructed properties that are done. Would I want to go in and build one? No. <laughs> yeah, too much risk. Been there, done that. Not in the multifamily side, but I've, I've built a self-storage facility and uh, it was uh, one of the worst experiences of my life, uh, you know, because <laughs> and, and it has nothing to do with self-storage. So all your self-storage guys don't, you know, you don't have to defend your industry. I still believe in it. But what happens is you get past the point or no return and then everything kind of uh, goes against you. And that's what happened to me is uh, once I started building, steel prices doubled. And that doubled my construction cost. And, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. You have to finish and you have to press on. And that's the problem with development. Uh, things change during the process and it doesn't always change in your favor. Sometimes it does. Investors just really need to understand that new construction is probably the riskiest investment. That's right. It's It has to match your risk profile mm -hmm. and you have to be willing to wait. Uh, you know, it's it's nice to start getting your cash flow returns quickly uh, in development projects. And Kathy, I know you do you do you do these. I know that. Oh, uh, and, and it's not been easy. <laughs> it is not easy. It's hard. It's stressful. It's a lot of work. And it's a it's a it's not instant gratification. I mean, it's nice to see beautiful buildings being built. But from a financial perspective, it takes a long time to realize the result if it's realized at all. And uh, I'm, I'm too old for that. <laughs> I, I know. I mean, our early projects, we were getting land for 10 cents on the dollar and, you know, you could make it work, but I just don't know how people pay, you know, high land costs and high construction costs and high debt costs and, and make it work today. Oh, no, I, I don't either. I don't, I don't either. 
So, Brian, uh, this has been great, and we do have to get out of here soon, but I have a large multi-part question for you, so this is going to be a big one. (laughs) Hit me, Dave. All right. We're in the beginning of 2023, and everyone listening is learning a lot from you, but what they really want to know is what they're supposed to do. So I'm going to ask you a two-part question. What should people who want to sponsor multifamily investments do, or what advice would you give them in 2023? And then... For people who invest in passively in syndications or uh, in multifamily deals, what advice would you give to them? Okay, so for the first group that wants to uh, wants to be the active participant and sponsor multifamily investments, I will tell you a couple of things. One, it is so much easier to lose a million dollars than to make a million dollars. Always keep that in mind because. Uh, your primary job, you really only have one job. You know, there's the old saying like, you only have one job. Well, you really only have one job. Don't lose your client's money, okay? So uh, keep that forefront in your mind and make sure that when you're preparing to acquire a property and launch an offering, that you have a very high degree of confidence that you're gonna have a successful outcome and that you're not gonna lose your client's money. Because if you do, if you get in too early, it could be the end of your career. Uh, and you don't want that to happen. So if you want to do this and you want to do this for the long haul, it's okay to wait uh, until you're comfortable that you're going to have the best odds of producing a successful outcome. That's preferable than to start too early, screw it up, lose your clients, and then now you're out of business and you're never going to you're never going to make a comeback, right? And Brian, is that to you? Would that be waiting through what you called the the pricing exercise that we're in right now? Yes. Get through the price discovery. Let other buyers figure out price discovery. Start to get some direction to the game. So the kind of the way I put it is I'm watching this game from the grandstands. Uh, I'm not playing on the field right now, but I'm going to place a bet on the outcome of the game, but I'm going to wait until I can see some kind of trend in the score. Uh, who do I really think is going to win this game? And then I'll place my bets. Uh, I'd rather do that than to bet beforehand before I even know who the players in the game are going to be. Uh, so I, I think it's okay to sit back and, and watch. Uh, on, uh, for the passive investors out there who are looking to invest in passive syndications, I would say uh, look very closely at offers, offerings that are being launched right now. And uh, listen to what the uh, promoters are saying. And if it doesn't pass the smell test and you feel like those folks are losing credibility because they're promoting something that you feel is um, not appropriate for the time, pass on it and make a note of who those groups are. And and watch them and see what happens. Uh, there's no reason you have to make a quick decision. Watch and wait. And you'll start to see some of these groups may vanish in the wind. Uh, you want to invest with the groups that survive through whatever it is that's going on right now. Those are the people you want to invest with. Don't be the test case. Don't feel like you need to let them learn on your dime. Go with proven skilled operators that have been through a market cycle or that survived this one before you place any bets. Uh, This is a time for caution and it's a time for 
uh, diversification. Whatever you do, don't put all your money in one offering with one sponsor and hope and pray because that's about the worst strategy you can come up with right now. And and to just add to that, Brian, you know, if you're an accredited investor, take take the time and spend the money on having your CPA review the documents and your attorney review the documents because a lot of times these documents aren't well written. That'll tell you right off the bat that maybe something's wrong. Yeah, I, I love the uh, offering documents that are lit- riddled with spelling errors and grammatical mistakes and uh, uh, you know. It, uh, these sponsors are going to put their best foot forward while they're trying to raise money. And if that's their best foot, just what happens after they get your money uh, uh, could be kind of scary. So yes, review review carefully. And certainly there's a whole bunch of red flags. If you want to know what they are, you could read the hands-off investor because they're all listed in there. I mean, I took 30 years of experience in this business and rolled it up into 350 pages so that people wouldn't have to make these mistakes on their own. They could see where all the hidden skeletons were in the closets uh, it's all listed in there. Great. And Brian, is there anything else you think our audience should know about the the multifamily or broader commercial market in in the next year that you think they should pay attention to? Well, one thing to pay attention to is what's happening in other sectors of real estate. So, for example, um, net lease commercial, industrial, office. Uh, don't discount that stuff as either A, not a place to invest because perhaps it could be, or B, unrelated to multifamily because they are in some respect related. If, uh, if those assets start throwing off really attractive returns, capital is going to flow to those assets. And that's going to uh, mean um, you know, a longer recovery period for multifamily. It's going to mean that uh, cost of capital for multifamily projects is going to change. So when you start seeing cap rates in, say, office or retail or whatever, starting to climb into the sevens or eights, um, you, you can't think that multi can hold at a four and not be impacted by the competition of those dollars getting shifted to other asset classes. Woo! <laughs> mic drop. All right. Well, I guess if, if that was the mic drop, we got to go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Brian. This has been insightful and we really appreciate this. Uh, You know, everyone listening to this and Kathy and myself included, I'm sure, appreciate sort of the the sober look and uh, a real realistic understanding and you lending your knowledge to us about uh, what, what might be on the horizon here in the multifamily market. If people want to learn more from you, we mentioned your book or want to connect with you, where should they do that? Uh, yeah, the, uh, just one thing before I get to that is I do want to say I'm not all negative, Nancy. There, <laughs> there is going to be a positive side to this. Don't look at this as like you know this is doom and gloom. This is this happens. This is a market cycle. We're in it. It will bottom out. Things will get better, and there will be some massive opportunities coming down the line. And, and those opportunities will be much better than they would have been had this not happened. So there is a positive side to this. Uh, and so to learn more about the positivity side of it, uh, you can learn more about me uh, on our website uh, for Praxis Capital. It's praxcap.com. It's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. Of course, you can find me on Bigger Pockets in the forums answering questions. And uh, I've got an article I think it's going to be published on the blog soon that's going to be along uh, the, the lines of this conversation. Uh, also, check out Instagram at Investor Brian Burke, and the book is at biggerpockets.com forward slash syndication book. All right, great. Well, thanks again, Brian. We really appreciate it. And 
hopefully we'll have you back in a couple months and you can uh, give us an update on the multifamily market. Yeah, we expect the alert when it's time to dive in. There you go. (laughs) I'll bring it. All right. We got to get Brian on here like once a week. I want him to be my personal mentor. (laughs) I know. I I invest a lot in multifamily. I know you do too. So having him on is uh, selfishly very nice to to hear from him. Absolutely. So what do you think about all this? Where where do you think the, uh, you know, he's saying there's this pricing exercise or price discovery going on. What do you think? What's your gut tell you about the... The state of housing, you know, a year from now, where will multifamily be? Well, I mean, I don't want to even laugh. It's not funny. I think there will be um, blood in the streets, you know, I, and, and, and a lot of us could see that. I, I know a lot of people felt FOMO. I see people, I know people who did 20 acquisitions this year. And I would just kind of scratch my head like, is it, again, is it me? Am I not seeing it? Uh, but I think Brian, I've uh, just followed him for years and he has so much wisdom and insight that, you know, unfortunately, um, I think he's going to be right that there's the positive and negative. The positive is a year from now, it will be a good time to buy. And the negative is there will be a lot of loss. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I just like I asked that question about what case someone who's bearish about multifamily right now can make. And I guess what you and, and Brian shared makes some sense. But to me, it doesn't pass the sniff test. I, I just think the evidence that valuation that cap rates are going to expand. Like I just don't see how that doesn't happen and valuation doesn't fall 15, 20% in, in multifamily. It just seems like we're, we're, we're heading for that in the next couple of months. Yeah. You know, market shifts are really a great uh, opportunity to study psychology, honestly, because there's just, you know, just people grasping to what they're hoping will be the case or what, has been over the last few years and not just not able to read the market. So it it is just an incredible skill to be able to do that. And it's actually imperative uh, if you're going, especially if you're going to be managing other people's money. Now, in some cases, obviously there's things you can't see, you know, we, we couldn't have predicted a pandemic and then the supply chain issues and all of that. Uh, but, you know, sloppy underwriting, you know, that's, <laughs> that's more predictable. Totally. Yeah. And it's interesting what he said. And we've had a few other guests on here say the same thing that they were already starting to feel like the market was frothy Mm -hmm. in 2019. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, you can't predict COVID and you can't predict Russia invading Ukraine, but if they were already seeing the tea leaves as frothy and then you get this frenzy and pandemic, like I can see why someone like Brian is like, nah, I don't want any I'm out. of this. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, I never root for anyone to lose their shirt. So, uh, you know, I hope that there is, uh, that people don't, uh, suffer any, any significant losses from this. But at the same time, I, you know, if, if, smart people like Brian and you believe that multifamily valuations are going down, we should discuss that and be honest about that and uh, warn people that uh, to be cautious in, over the next couple of months um, and potentially wait until this uncertainty has sorted itself out and there's more clarity and stability in the market. Yeah, I love what he said about let other people do the repricing. <laughs> yeah. Wait until it lands and you know what, what the real values are. Absolutely. 
All right. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We do have something for you today. We, we forgot to mention this up top. But next week, Kathy, James, Jamil, Henry, and I are going to be debating a document I wrote called the 2023 State of Real Estate Investing. It's just an analysis of what happened in 2022. And I lay out a couple potential different scenarios for 2023. And we're going to debate it. If you want to download that ahead of the debate so you can follow along and maybe form your own opinions ahead of the debate, you can do that at Bigger Pockets. It's for free. It's biggerpockets.com slash report. So go check that out ahead of next week's episode. Again, thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next time for On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. And a big thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that. Or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.